you again. So good of you to drop by. Welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. You'll, you'll never believe the offer I had today. The Flat Earthers wanted to use one of my galleries for a special installation to promote their worldview. I assume this means that they were turned down by the more reputable venues in town. Well, I'm not in the practice of renting out my gallery space to outsiders, per se. However, I suppose most people would consider flatter theory to be a curiosity. And they have offered a rather handsome sum for the space, I haven't said no just yet, but hmm, we shall see. Our exhibit for this evening comes from Liam Hogan, an Oxford physics graduate and award-winning London-based writer. His short story, Anna, appears in Best of British Science Fiction 2016 from Nukon Press and his twisted fantasy collection, Happy Ending Not Guaranteed, is published by Arachne Press. Find him online at happyendingnotguaranteed.blogspot.co.uk and at Liam J. Hogan. It'll be read for us by Mr. Wolf Moon. Six Coins by Liam Hogan First impressions, barked Sir Richard Durnford as we made our way from the Dockside Tavern. I stiffened, aware that I had not been paying anything like enough attention. I thought back to the smoky interior of the sloop. It hadn't helped that the scrawny man sat in the corner, downing pint after pint, had spoken a clipped foreign language. I had grown bored, musing on why sailors chose to end their days squatting in dingy rooms, eating greasy food, and drinking their way through what little they could beg, or borrow, or steal. I had not been interested in the unkempt man, and nor had the ancient mariner shown any real interest in me. Not until we had been about to leave, when my master had cast a few guttural words in my direction one of them being my name. I looked up, surprised, to see a pair of sharp eyes peering at me. A parchment-skinned hand caught my chin, turning it this way and that to catch the fluttering candlelight as I tried not to shrink from his touch. When he finally released me, I felt the stranger's eyes on my back all the way to the tavern door and into the brightness beyond. A habitual drunkard, I said, without much conviction. Corroborating evidence, Sir Richard demanded. When I'd been apprenticed to such an esteemed patron, I thought my luck had changed, my future set and assured. 
a future I fully deserved as the brightest and hardest working student in the orphanage. I was swiftly and rudely set straight. Everything, every little task I did was criticized, analyzed, and found wanting. Every answer picked over, every inspired guess deflated. Not only that, but my new master, the famous explorer, seemed reluctant to set sail once again. For six months, I had worked as little more than his errand boy, or sat with him in coach houses and taverns such as the one we had just left, listening to retired sailors spin their fanciful tales. He drank three tankards to your one, I argued. If he wasn't drunk already, he surely was by the time we left. He's wasting away, his clothes ill-fitting. I would hazard he drinks more than he eats, and his surly manner strongly suggests alcoholic depression. Anything else? probed Sir Richard. I gulped, already feeling myself smarting from the swift smack on the ear that would come from my failure to report whatever it was my master evidently wanted to hear. Um, coins? He kept playing with his coins. Quick, how many? Six, I said promptly. Six half crowns, one in the middle and five around, all touching. My master said nothing. No, wait, seven. He had a coin to one side, another half crown. He kept running his fingers over it, and occasionally he'd stare at it as if surprised to find it there. My master grunted and recommenced his long-strided walk. Well, your eyes perform better than your brain, he said. A pity tis not the other way around, but never mind. So tell me, young Alex, a single coin can be surrounded by five others. Does it matter where in the world you play this game? From center to rim, is it always five? I thought hard for a moment. On a flat surface, the same size coins? Yes, always five. Better and better on a flat surface. There's hope for you yet. We walked along in silence as I tried to work out the meaning of his words. Why do you think the old man plays with his coins like that? I shrugged. The idle actions of a drunk? The blow was swift and sharp. I don't know, I yelped. Ah, you speak wisely for once. Sir Richard stopped again, this time midway along a busy alley. He seemed oblivious to the hostile stares from the other pedestrians as they squeezed past. He does it, young Alex, because five is not the answer he expects. He repeats the action because each time he hopes for a different result. It sounded suspiciously like the definition of madness to me. Sir Richard read my thoughts. He is neither mad nor drunk. You are wrong in that regard as well. The small tankard of watery ale you consume during the sitting gives him the edge over you in terms of sobriety. His body no longer processes alcohol the way you and I do. He is immune to its incapacitating effects. 
Tell me, what language were we speaking? I was wary again. It had been an ugly, sharp speech, reminiscent of something from the distant islands to the far east. But to hazard a guess was to hazard another blow. I did not recognize it, I admitted, though the occasional word was spoken clearly. Tide and moon, for example. Sir Richard laughed. Yes, I'm afraid I was a bit of a dullard today. He kept having to coax me. Sir? It was a language lesson, Alex. My last, unfortunately. Time presses on. We set sail in a week, and there is much to do before then. Sir Richard? I asked, thoughtful. If he can't get drunk, why does he drink so much? My master turned his gaze across the harbor to the tall ships docked there and beyond. Perhaps for the same reason he plays with the coins, he mused. He prays for a different answer. We watched as the sun slipped below the horizon above us, a momentary rainbow forming as edge foam split the rays. To the east, the shadow was already complete, a few early lights from the next town over glimmering like stars. And to the west, the sea sparkled in the remain of the day's sunlight. It would be another couple of hours before the entire bowl of the earth would be in darkness, such that you could no longer distinguish land from sea, not unless there was a moon. It had always seemed strange to me that there was anything to explore, any call for men like Sir Richard, when, from King's Harbor that sat so nearly dead center, you could see the whole world mapped out before you, from east to west and north to south, except where clouds drifted across and hid what lay beneath. But the scientists said that from center to edge it was a distance of some 6,000 miles, and at that remove even medium-sized islands were easily overlooked. Sir Richard had been responsible for finding a half dozen such remote lands and archipelagos and claiming them for the king. And now he, we, were off once again. I wondered where on the great bowl that curved above and around us we would be headed and whether his good fortune would be rewarded with yet another find. Idly, I dreamed of a harbor or perhaps even a small island named after me, a reward for being the first to spy from the crow's nest or the first to set foot on its rocky shore. There were three ships in the expedition, the Starling, Foxhound, and the Sheldrake. The week passed by at frenetic pace as the trio of ships were supplied and I helped pack and catalog Sir Richard's equipment and empty specimen cases. The most fascinating of his items was a long metal tube with curved ground glass at either end through which things appeared nearer than they really were. Given the chance, I would have used it to peer at every inch of the earth's bowl that surrounded us, seeking out new lands from the comfort of Sir Richard's high tower, or perhaps scan the flat disk of the heavens that topped the bowl for stars and comets but it was too precious and rare an item to be left in my hands for long. Wrapped in layer upon layer of cloth, it was packed tightly into its custom-made box. 
After the six months of hanging around, I could scarcely believe it when our day of departure at last arrived. The weather was mournful. Mist shrouded the dockside buildings and the chill air was made even keener by the mutterings of a pair of old sailors watching the last stages of our preparations. Ill wind, observed one. I bad omen, replied the other, spitting into the murky waters of the harbor. Finally, the equipment and the men were aboard. I stood with my master on the poop deck of the Sheldrake, giddy with nerves, waiting for the off. Sir Richard frowned, staring through the slowly lifting mist. He promised he would be here, he said, as much to himself as to me. Who, sir? Skella, my language teacher, my guide. The scrawny man in the tavern? I shook my head. I thought you said he was too old to sail again, I said. He is, but he sent me a note, a letter, last night. A change in heart, I suppose. Said he would travel with me. Said he had no choice. I shrugged. Despite my master's obvious regard, I had no real confidence in the man I had met only once and whose keen gaze, half amused, half incredulous, I still remembered with a degree of fear. Sir Richard, pressed the first mate, a tall, handsome man, hovering near my master's elbow. The tide? Sir Richard nodded. Cast off then, Monson, he said with reluctance. He kept watching the harbor front until it was swallowed by the damp air. I stayed with him, enjoying the salt spray, the noises as men made busy with the rigging, the sensation that my life, my adventure, had finally begun. A scant hour later the seasickness claimed me, and to the howls of laughter from the sailors on board, I spilled my guts over the side into the churning gray-green waters. I spent the rest of the day in the cramped cabin I shared with the captain's assistant, Johann Filks, a boy no older than I, who treated me and my illness with all the contempt it deserved. By the time I was able to stand on deck once again, the land we had come from, the land I had grown up in and never left before, had begun to climb the bowl behind us, and for the first time was laid out such that I could view it in its entirety. At this short distance, it was stretched thin, with a few northern peninsulas teased out like windswept rags. I had seen maps of our world. My master had a fine half-globe and had brought its smaller cousin with him on this trip, the land painted in enamel of the inside of a copper hemisphere, so I knew what shape center would eventually hold. Already, the far edges were indistinct, softened by the air between us and them. So, I heard a relaxed voice say, you're alive. I turned to see Monson looking at me with amusement. Yes, sir, I replied. Good, then it's about time I put you to work. I frowned at that. My master, Sir Richard has expressly asked that I attend to your education in maritime matters, young Alex. In truth, 
Most of that you will pick up from Filks. You will share his workload at any and all times. You are not directly answering to Sir Richard. Monson waited a moment to see if I would protest before he continued. But, as Filks too has much to learn despite his heirs, the pair of you, along with a few of the younger ratings, will spend an hour a day with either myself or the sailing master as we cover navigation and other issues. I hope you are as quick on the uptake as your employer gives you credit. The mutiny came a week in, when our destination was finally disclosed. We were not, after all, plying uncharted seas looking for new and undiscovered islands. We were headed to the very edge of the world, to the perilous rim. Despite Sir Richard's claims that he knew a man who had gone where we planned to go and lived to tell the tale, Skella, presumably, though he didn't mention him by name, many of the sailors refused to believe. Ships that explored the rim rarely returned. Some said there were monsters there. Some said reefs. Some said the spume of edge foam was caused by terrible currents that could rip a ship in half. Sir Richard doubled the money he had promised. Many of these men had sailed with him before and considered him a fair leader, a man not known for foolish or dangerous whims. Those men stayed true. Others of lesser experience were swayed by that loyalty and by the offer of increased wages. But still, a full third of our complement transferred over to the Starling and headed back the way we had come under the stern command of Captain Thorpe. A compromise had been arrived at. The charge of mutiny was not to be levied, but breach of contract meant none of them except Thorpe would be paid. It would be a wasted, frugal two weeks for the doubting sailors, but other than a few grumbles, most of them looked more relieved than annoyed. I had expected my master to be angry. As I stood at the rail watching the overcrowded schooner on its new course, he lit his pipe and casually waved after the departing ship's sails. The Starling would never have made it anyway, he said. Too old, too slow as well. We'll make better time without it. You expected the mutiny? I asked, voice lowered. Planned for it? Oh yes, he nodded, his voice equally low. And there may well be another later on. But as we cannot afford to lose a second ship, that one we will quell with force. So keep your eyes and ears open, young Alex. A trip to the edge, even with favorable equatorial winds, still took many months. I wondered what he sought there. There were rumors of a thin strip of land behind the wall of constant mists, rumors of strange men and strange beasts that lived hidden away, rumors of fabulous treasure. As the Great Bowl tilted and the opposite side began to loom disturbingly overhead, as the edge we were heading towards thinned, I grew accustomed to life on board. Lessons continued 
and Monson proved an able teacher. But it was Sir Richard who divulged our ultimate destination. So, Alex, he said, having called me to the airy room he and his charts inhabited, I hear you are now fully trained in the arts of naval navigation. Yes, sir. You know how to measure where we are? By noon and by tilt, yes, sir. He nodded. From the height of the sun at noon, we could tell our position north and south, and from the difference of the elevations from near to far edge, we could tell our distance from the center from where we had departed. Combining both allowed us to plot our position to chart our progress. He pointed to his globe, the hollow hemisphere, and asked me to mark our current location. It took me a while to orient the thing, lining up north and south and carefully angling it until the loose marble rolling loosely around within represented where we were. The marble rested less than an inch from the edge. He rested his hand on the scooped shape, nodded his approval. And what do you think we will find on the other side, Alex? The other side, sir? He grinned, tilting the globe still further until the marble dropped to the floor, where he trapped it with one foot. And then he turned the globe until it was upside down, beaming at his distorted bronzed reflection. Imagine, Alex, a whole other world on the underside of ours. I paled. We're going over the edge? I thought of the sheldrake plummeting like that marble, falling into nothingness. A sudden return of the seasickness that I thought long conquered narrowed my vision to that of my master's booted foot. Of course. We didn't come all this way merely for the view, my boy. I saw that there were pencil marks on the underside of the globe, a rough shape of lands far greater in extent than even the continent of center. My stomach churned at the notion that anyone living there would surely suffer the same fate as the marble, for how could anything find rest on that domed surface? Now, he said, oblivious to my distress, pointing to marks hard by the edge. The way Skella described it, and assuming the captain's navigation is as solid as yours, we should emerge close to these lands here. I shook my head. Lands on the underside of the world? Under the bowl? It was a fairy tale, a nightmare. Sir, I protested my tongue freed from my fear. Our world cannot have such a thin skin. If it did, our miners would dig through to the other side. He laughed and tapped the unpainted copper surface so that it chimed like a bell. Indeed, a fair point. Most scientists do not believe in the existence of the other side at all. They think there is nothing but empty, endless night over the edge. But amongst those few who do, the most credible claim the Earth's true shape is like that of an apple, a 
a solid, spherical body, and that what we see as a bowl is due to a twist in space and time, a matter of topology, in which case you would have to dig some 8,000 miles to get to the other side. Going over the edge should be a lot quicker. I shook my head. A solid globe could have no rim, no center, no bowl. If that were true, I cried, sensible only at the extreme that I was arguing with my master, an offense that should have seen me soundly beaten, then someone would have crossed before us. They did, was his reply. Crossed and returned. Skella. But it was not easy, and it was certainly not without its risks. He picked up the marble, placed it on the metal rim of the globe, holding it in place with a delicate finger. The edge is an unstable place to be. The foam and vicious currents tell us that. Tales of unwary ships being torn apart warn us of the dangers. Then how? I was unable to voice the full question, unable to comprehend the insanity of his plan. It is a matter of timing, Alex. How long before we arrive? The dread would not let go of my stomach, nor my mind. A week? Maybe two? I spluttered. It had best be no more than ten days. We're on a tight schedule. What significant date is in ten days' time? I racked my brains. The king's birthday? But what would that matter? So very far from his palace, his lands. And then it clicked. The equinox? And not just the equinox. Tell me, O oh navigator, what will be the stage of the moon on that date? It is crescent now and waxing. I guess it will be nearly full. It will be precisely full, he corrected. At noon on the equinox, a rare occurrence, the moon on one side and the sun on the other. A moment of balance. Then and only then will we attempt our crossing. I gasped. I was on a suicide mission, all on the ramblings of a man who couldn't get drunk, but desperately wanted to. Thinking of my one meeting with him, I remembered the puzzle my master had sent me. The coins? Ah, uh, yes, the coins. As you can see from this globe, there is no single point on the surface on either surface, inner or outer, where it can truly be said to be flat. It is always curved. If the scientists' theories are correct, and if Skella is to be believed, then on the other side of the world, it won't be five coins that fit around a central one. It will be six. The very laws of nature, of time, will be different there. I don't know why Sir Richard told me all of this, 
Perhaps he had been unable to contain his excitement so close to attaining his goal. It was an unwelcome burden to share, and as I left, shaken to the core, he warned me not to discuss his plans with anyone else. That, as much as the horror of what he was suggesting, left me tormented, wrestling alone with thoughts of the impossible, crippled by fear. As we sailed on, the mists thickened. It became increasingly difficult to take the measurements we needed to gauge our position, and even more important to do so. The crew muttered and argued, falling silent at my passing. Monson and others took to wearing their pistols on their belts, ready and primed. In the constant cloud, the dank air grew cold, and with it, unease edged into paranoia. The day of the equinox dawned. In the distance, there was a low roar, like an unseen waterfall. If the mists do not clear, we cannot continue, the captain warned. We cannot navigate the edge blind. Sir Richard chewed at his lip, all this way, only to be thwarted by the weather. Briefly, I felt elation. Dangerous though our inability to see in these uncharted waters was, surely it was no more so than forging ahead and over the edge. But around mid-morning, the slackened sails flapped and told us of a change in the wind and, shortly after, we had our first glimpses of clear sky for the best part of a week. A sky cut precisely in two by the faint and distant view of the edge opposite the one we were on the blue of sky and sea merging directly overhead. Dizzy with vertigo, I cast my eyes firmly to the wooden planks beneath my feet. One of the obstacles to our passing had been lifted. What others remained? Sir Richard had his spyglass out, scanning the skies. Look, he exclaimed, handing me the device, birds. Rimwords, a couple of white-winged specks drifted, slowly circling. They do not fear the edge, he being. A good sign. They were storm petrels. No true sailor ever thought those a good omen. I did not bother to point this out to him. We made busy. Flags were run up the mast, a message to the foxhound. They were to hold their position as the sheldrake nosed slowly forward to follow only if and when signaled to do so. How I envied them. The temptation to dive overboard and swim to safety had never been stronger. Sir Richard laughed to himself and produced a letter from his pocket. You know, he said he'd be by my side at this moment. Instead, it's you, Alex. As he waved the folded sheet, I saw for the first time the old man's writing and his signature. It was not written the way I'd expected, that I'd presumed. Not Skella, after all, but Zella, with an X. Except he capitalized his name oddly, the last letter capitalized, not the first. It took until after to work out why. 
The noise built into a rushing, deafening roar. The sailors were kept occupied as the wind gusted and swirled. I wondered if any of them knew the fate their captain and my master had designed for them. I hardly wished I didn't. The sun had nearly reached its zenith when Sir Richard patted his pockets and, coming up empty, turned to me once more. Coins, Alex, he cried. Hand me some coins. I fumbled with my purse, pouring copper farthings and pennies into his waiting hand. I expected him to count out six of them, but instead he stood as if judging their weight, then tossed them lightly into the air. For a moment, they floated as if on threads of cotton. His face erupted into an even wider grin before a gust blew the coins every which way. Now, Captain, he yelled over the incessant roar. Now or never. With a sickening lurch, the sheldrake plunged towards the foaming madness of the edge, and the very waters rose up against us. I was the only survivor. Battered and alone on a strange shore, the horizon nowhere in sight, the sky too big, too wide, crushing me beneath its awful weight. Much of the horror of the shipwreck was lost to me, but fragrance remained to haunt my dreams. Early on, as the sea churned and pulled at us like a bobbing cork, I saw Filks go overboard. At the moment he would have hit the water, he seemed to pause, to hover, a look of thankful astonishment on his face, just before his body was slammed with a sickening crunch against the solid timbers of the bow. Sir Richard and I tied ourselves off, and not long afterwards I watched as he went down with the sheldrake, desperately tearing at the wet rope that had sealed his doom. I was lucky, or fated perhaps. The spar I was secured to broke off, and a section of sail dragged me clear, as well as supporting my unconscious body on its way through the crashing surf. Had we been too slow? To make the crossing? Had the brief lull as moon and sun tugged in opposite directions ended before we traversed the edge? Or was it always going to end this way? Forty-two men going to their watery deaths, one lone boy washed up with the smashed remains of a once proud ship? I shall not relate my adventures on the other side. You would not believe, nor understand. Suffice it to say that I found wonders there, and terrors, and, for a brief while, love. Nor can I tell you the means by which I made my eventual return, traversing lands ripped apart and blazing with furious heat, with molten rock. I myself do not fully understand my reasons for such a journey, and I will always regret the madness of having made it. A return I did, though a changed man. I had lived too long on the other side, more than half my life. Somehow, I could no longer speak the language I had spoken as a child and was forced to learn anew. 
even my name sounded foreign to my ear and to others. Alex. Skella. I slowly made my way to center, to King's Harbor, discovering the tavern a few days after my arrival. It wasn't called the Sloop, not yet, but it was undoubtedly the same place. And now, here I sit, drinking ale that has no effect on me, playing with coins begged from strangers. But no matter how often I try, I cannot fit more than five around that central piece. Still, it passes a time. It passes the years until the face I see in the looking glass matches the creased, aged one I dimly remember. Until my appointment with the famous explorer and his oh-so-young apprentice. An appointment I know I must one day keep so that my life's journey can finally come to an end in the same smoke-filled rooms where it began. You know, I recall reading that the Flat Earth International Conference is, or rather was, planning a cruise down to Antarctica to see for themselves those towering barrier ice walls which keep our oceans from falling off the edge of the world. Something like the wall from Game of Thrones, one imagines. Hmm. Perhaps I should reconsider their offer. We certainly could use the funding. Now that I think about it, I believe I have some artifacts from the Clough North Pole Inner Earth Expedition in Mothballs. Those would go nicely with whatever they have in mind for their presentation. It might even bring in some new visitors once these interesting times pass over, that is. At any rate, the hour is late. I need to prepare for tomorrow's visitors. Oh, who am I kidding? There will be no visitors tomorrow. The mayor's already put us all under a state of emergency. Do log on for the stream next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivative license. All story copyrights remain with the authors. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. Some soundscapes were made by TabletopAudio.com. This episode was produced in March of 2020. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. Hmm, so what you're saying, Kevin, is that if the world were on a Lobachevskian plane like this, monkey saddle, as you called it, then the oceans would be stretching down or up to infinity, but not falling over the edge. Hmm. 
That is a little disturbing. Let's go back to somewhere more Euclidean. Let's consider the Discworld. The rim ocean is constantly being diminished as it falls over the edge, so that would mean that the elephants are drawing water up from the star turtle somehow, wouldn't it? That must be why Mr. Pratchett chose elephants. They would need a trunk to do that. It would make sense. That makes sense. Trunks. Andrew, bring another coal for the hookah. I need to think about this a little more. So great a twin must be reabsorbing the oceans before they boil off into the void. <sighs> That's smooth, I like that. Conservation of mass. Oh, I see you finally learned how to inhale. Very good. But still, some must be lost. So it must stop to drink the oceans of the world. It passes to replenish the oceans of the world it carries, which would mean... Wait, what would that mean? Which would mean that that leaves the trail of death and destruction as it travels across the universe. Universe? Multiverse? Hmm. Rather like Galactus. How much longer do we have to stay shut in like this? There's only so many episodes of the facts of life that I can watch in a row. 